What do you think it would have been like if you were the very first to recognize the need for personal computers and you had the opportunity to build out the very first one? Today on Podcastification, we're talking with a guy who kind of has a knack for seeing the opportunities for being first. And he's used his podcast to be the first to build an amazing platform. And there's a lot of lessons you're going to learn by hearing his story. My name is Kerry Green, and I am the Client Happiness Guy at PodcastFastTrack.com, and this is Podcastification. Podcastification is all about you, teaching you how to podcast, how to put into practice the best practices that I and my team have learned in working with hundreds of clients. You are going to podcast better from listening to this show. If you like what you hear on Podcastification, please just hit the pause button, swipe to the sharing function on your app, and share this episode with somebody you know will benefit. And if you'd like to get in on more Podcastification goodness, you can do it by subscribing to our Podcast Optimizer email series, and I promise you, you won't get lots of junk. You'll just get one actionable email a week. Go to podcastfasttrack.com slash optimizer. That is enough of that kind of stuff. Let's get you podcastificated right away. You know, there are all kinds of people out there who have all kinds of smarts about all kinds of things. And today's guest, Andrew Alleman, is one of those guys. Andrew is an expert in the domain name industry. You know, those .coms and .ios and .whatevers that you see at the end of every website. There is actually an industry around the purchase and the trade and the, the securing of those kinds of things. And Andrew got into it simply because he saw an opportunity. There was something he wished existed. It didn't. And so he created it. And then he did that again once he was a podcaster. He began looking for something he needed as a podcaster, couldn't find it, and decided he would just create it. And it has gone gangbusters for him. Now, in this conversation... I don't want you so much to pay attention to the specifics of what it is that Andrew does. I want you to pay attention to the mindset and the approach and the things that he does to give himself the ability to see the opportunities that are before him in his particular niche and to take advantage of them using free resources, being scrappy and putting things together the best that he can and giving it a try and making the most of the opportunities as they come his way. This is a great approach and a great addition to our strategy on podcast monetization. My friends, please meet my friend, Andrew Alleman. All right, so Andrew, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I'm curious, first of all, because I don't really know your backstory. How did you get into domain investing? I started registering domain names as an investment when I was in college. So this is the late 90s. It was kind of the time when we were transitioning from people accessing the internet or the web over CompuServe and Prodigy, and people were moving toward where they were actually using a web browser like Netscape. And so domain names were extremely popular, and they started selling for a lot of money. This was the dot-com boom. And so when I was in college, I was like, hey, why don't I register some of these domain names and see if I can make some money from it? So this was just a hobby. Yeah, this was a hobby. And it was 
as a college student, it was kind of expensive. It was back then it was $70 to register a domain name, which, wow. you know, the trade-off there, that's a, that's a keg of beer, right? And so yeah, yeah. you had to get your priorities straight. So I registered some domain names back then in the late nineties and I didn't register nearly enough nor high enough quality. So I couldn't, you know, retire right out of college. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's when I got started with domain names. Yeah. So did you have any training in how to do that or were you just kind of spitballing it? I was spitballing it. You know, I really registered my first domain name to create a website. Back then, there was, of course, no WordPress and there were some tools out there to create websites. There was one called Hot Dog at the time and then Microsoft had front page. As a student, you could go get Microsoft software for like $5. So I got a copy of front page and I was creating these static websites. And of course, you needed a domain name to do that. And then I was like, hey, why don't I register some some more of these domain names? So what philosophy were you using to choose your domain names at that point? I know it's definitely evolved since then. Yeah, it was it was very much just trying to come up with words that weren't registered. And, and you know, I know a lot of people complain right now about, oh, all the good domain names are taken and there are 130 million, something like that, .com domain names registered. Back then, I think it was fewer than 10 or 15 million. Oh, wow. And so back then it seemed like, oh, all the good domains are registered, but the reality was uh, they, they weren't. So it was just coming up with names and topics and seeing what was available. Uh, there weren't that many tools back then to find things, but that was how I approached it. Hmm. So getting into it way back then, naturally, the industry and the approach to domain name selection and investing has evolved. Just give me a snapshot of where things are at in that industry today. Right now, a lot of people use a number of tools to find good domain names and to bid on them in auctions. So, for example, every week I use a tool called expiringdomains.net to search for domain names that meet certain criteria that are expiring. Criteria such as how old they are, the keywords in them, how common the search terms are, to really whittle down a list because there are hundreds of thousands of domain names expiring every every week. And so this helps whittle it down to about 1,500 or so for me to manually review and pick which ones I want to buy and how much I'm willing to bid in these expiring domain name auctions because all the good domains are auctioned off at this point. If a person was to go, say, to one of the domain search engines that are on the internet, you know, easily accessible and just start typing in domains that they think are good, that sounds like more what you were doing in college. That's right. You're a lot more sophisticated about it now. Yes. And, and a, a lot of people are a lot more sophisticated about it now. So the, there's lots of competition for the best names that are out there, but the process isn't as manual as it used to be. Domain investing has become much more mainstream. GoDaddy, which is the largest domain name registrar, has created lots of tools to help people. And they're the biggest let's call them auctioneer of expired domain names, the biggest expired domain name service out there now. And of course, you can also buy domain names from other people. You don't have to buy just expired domain names. So I do a little bit of that. Uh, it's just buying the expired ones is easier because they're expired. You don't have to deal with the person who previously owned them. You just kind of deal with the service like GoDaddy and bid on them. And if you win, they put it in your account. So it's much easier now. What were your concerns moving into college? Did you have any idea what you were going to do? I've always been in the business. I was the the kid who in elementary school was figuring out how to make money, you know, 
buying candy and breaking down the packs and selling it, you know, at school and that sort of thing, or, or setting up a stand in the neighborhood. So I was always in the business. I was always into entrepreneurship. And then when I went to college at the University of Texas, I got into the business honors program there. And that's where I really got into finance. I've always been interested in finance, but I got a degree in finance in college, which set me up for business afterward. So what did you expect to do with that when you graduated college? I expected to either do investment banking or management consulting. I spent one summer of my college years at Boston Consulting Group, which is a a really high-end management consulting firm. And when I interviewed senior year of school, a couple companies popped up on my radar. One of the offers I got was from Amazon.com. Um, which you might have heard of at this point, uh, <laughs> which to be fair, was still big back then, right? It was This was the dot-com boom. And then another one was called Trilogy in Austin, which is a technology company that really got into the dot-com boom as well. It, it started as an enterprise software company, but then it moved into spinning out kind of all these startups. One of them went public called PC Order, but we also had, I think it was called Insurance Order, Appliance Order, you know, where we're trying to sell all this stuff online. And I took that job out of school as a financial analyst. But part of that program was that they took all these students fresh out of college and threw them in this program they called Trilogy University, where you get to try all sorts of things. And most of the people they hired were developers, right? They were very sharp coders. There were a handful of us, people that came from the business side. And so I got to do a lot of interesting stuff there. But then the dot-com bust happened shortly after I joined. So only stayed there for about a year and a half before the company really, really imploded. Hmm. So during that time, were you thinking you would be starting your own online companies or or websites or things like that at that time? Or did that develop later? You know, I always had stuff on the, on the side. You know, I'd started my first websites when I was in college and I, I sold a couple of them, not for a lot of money. I sold them on eBay. What kind of websites were these? Well, let's see. The first one was online gambling, which at the time was in a very kind of gray area. It was just an affiliate site. And then I created one... I want to say the domain name was .comreviews.com. And it was basically, (laughs) it was a review site where I review websites in certain categories. And I sold that one. And and these, again, I think at most that one was like $10,000 on on eBay. As a college student, that was great. Oh, sure. But it wasn't retirement money. And so I I kind of always had those things going on the side. and, And I always felt like an entrepreneur who wanted to do my own stuff. Trilogy kind of let people come in and be entrepreneurs. That's one of the reasons I went there. In fact, alumni from that company have started lots of big companies and have gone on to do great things. It's been a great network for me. So, you know, I've always been into that. The reality for anyone who's had their own business is that it's hard and it's not as stable, at least early on, is working for someone else. And and Trilogy came in and just offered people a crazy amount of money. If I recall correctly, it was like twice as much as Amazon offered to pay me, which is part of the reason I took the job, obviously. I mean, at that age, people say, oh man, you missed out on this big boat being at Amazon. 
And you know, obviously, if you bought stock back then and held on to it, you'd be very wealthy or if you worked there the whole time. But people kind of forget that 2001, 2, 3 were very hard times and people were looking at companies like Amazon thinking they aren't going to make it. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a good chance that I wouldn't have stayed there very long, even if I had gone to, to Amazon. So after Trilogy imploded, it was a really hard time, especially in Austin as a young person. At the time, we were much smaller than we are now as a city. There were very few jobs for people without lots of years of experience. Uh, so I went to work for what's now AT&T for a few years. After I left AT&T, that's the last kind of big company job I had. And since then, I've been working either for startups that I have started or been involved with, or my domain blog, domain name wire, and other businesses uh, along the way. Sometimes filling in the gaps with kind of consulting and, and contract roles as well. But I would say for the past five years, it's been just me, no outside investors, <laughs> working on stuff that I love. So did you make a conscious decision to step away from corporate type jobs and do your own thing? Working at a Fortune 500 was a miserable experience. It's a suffocating experience for someone who likes to think in different ways and doesn't like to waste time. Mm. And so that is really where I was like, you know, I really need to get out of this. And, and at the time, what gave me the confidence was that I had started these, what we called made for AdSense websites. And so back then, so it's uh, 2004, I'd say, you could get a lot of stuff to rank pretty easily in Google. And so I had bought a lot of expired domains and then, you know, they had a lot of search engine juice, as some people would call it, because they had all these links pointing into them. And I basically create these automated websites on those domain names. And they would get a lot of traffic and make a lot of money. I mean, at one point at the peak, I was making over $1,000 a day from these AdSense sites. Wow. That peak was very short lived because one day, I, I still remember it, I get an email from Google saying, hey, the sites that our ads are on don't meet our quality requirements. And basically overnight, that $1,000 a day went to a couple hundred dollars a day, went mm. to 100 and then on down from there. I was also doing affiliate arbitrage, which at the time was fairly easy to do. Affiliate arbitrage is basically you join affiliate programs and then buy Google ads and Yahoo pay-per-click ads and send traffic to those companies' websites, and you would get paid for doing that. And so I could set that on autopilot, make a few hundred dollars a day, uh, and that was all good. But like many things that seem too good to be true and too easy, the competition comes in, lots of other people come in, and then you also get policy changes and that sort of thing. So I've always had a few balls in the air around those sorts of things, but I would say the combination of starting to make a lot of money outside of working for a Fortune 500 and just the how miserable I was really had an impact there. I remember one day I was driving to work and it was a scenic drive. It was about 20, 25 minutes. And at the time I had a pretty lead foot. And so I was driving really fast on my way to work. And then about halfway there, I took my foot off the pedal and I was like, why am I speeding to work? You know, I, I don't enjoy <laughs> being there. So why am I in such a hurry to get there? And so it was around that time that I decided I wanted to go do something that wasn't working for a large corporation. Hmm. Now, let me dig a little bit into your mindset and your 
skill set at that time. You obviously are a smart guy. You have college training and you did well in school as far as your opportunities that came from it demonstrate. How did you learn to get into things like AdSense and pay-per-click and affiliate sorts of relationships? You know, it's a tough question to answer. I'm trying to go back in time because these things typically happen gradually. You know, I I guess maybe you know someone who's into it and they turn you on to it. But I think I just read everything I could about this starting back in college. And I got really excited about it and just started teaching myself. You know, you'd have that friend in the dorm who knew something about HTML and they would kind of teach you, walk you through that. And then when it comes to domain names, of course, you kind of learn that process. It's a lot of trial and error. And there were a lot of people pitching, I don't want to say get rich quick, but they were pitching eBooks and stuff on how to do certain things. And as a general rule, I'd say once someone starts selling their process for doing something, it's probably too late. You know, there's a reason they're telling you rather than just doing it themselves. But I definitively remember for like 50 bucks buying this eBook about how to do affiliate arbitrage. And I understand why the person was now selling their process because there have been some policy changes that were making it harder for him to make a lot of money doing it. But, you know, that small investment, if you will, really paid off for me, getting me thinking and just kind of shortcutting the process to figure these things out. I'm a big fan of learning from other people. And sometimes you need to pay for that expertise. You know, people that know a lot more than you about a subject, there's a reason people pay to to learn from them. And so I would say from networking, from reading, going to forums and stuff online, and occasionally buying educational tools, this really helped me along that path. I appreciate you sharing that. So take us up to the point where you started Domain Name Wire, your, your blog about domain names, and what was your goal there? What was it you hoped to accomplish? So I started it in March of 2005. And at the time, there were no blogs covering the business of domain names. Hmm no kind of daily blogs. There was no one running a WordPress site. There was a forum that a lot of people visited to talk about domain names, but forums are very different animals than blogs. And I was starting up, I just left AT&T and I started a business with uh, my boss there. And then on the side in the evenings, I would blog and I wasn't making any money from it. And then one day I had a company in the domain name industry reach out and say, hey, we'd like to advertise on your blog. So I said, sure. And so I put their ad on and then I got more ads and more ads. And this is, mind you here now, it's it's 2019. And so it just kind of took off from there where eventually when I left that company that I'd started with my boss a few years later, I started kind of doubling down on this blog and it became a full-time thing for me. Uh, And by full-time, I don't mean 40 hours a week, but it became my bread and butter as far as earning money. I was still buying and selling domain names, but the blog really became the more stable income producer for me. Wow, that's amazing. So in a sense, you became an industry leader and perhaps some would even say an industry expert simply by being the first to come up with the idea that you did. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I would say I was, yeah, I became kind of a voice of the industry. There was one person who had created a site that wasn't a daily news blog, but just a site that was tracking domain sales and writing about people in the industry who was also, who was very well known at the time. So I did have someone kind of as a trailblazer for me. 
Uh, but being first certainly helped. There are a lot of domain blogs out there. I like to think mine's also higher quality than the others, but um, the reality is being the first one to start a news blog about the domain name business certainly certainly helped. And so that led into a, a lot of opportunities in the domain business. And we're a fairly small industry. GoDaddy dominates, uh, but there are a lot of players and people know that I kind of have my finger on the pulse, right? And so I became kind of one of the de facto experts uh, in the space. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're talking to so many people, you're you're receiving well, you're building relationships with people in the industry in the in the form of advertising partners and that sort of thing. So it totally makes sense. Give me some advice for people who would love to be the first in, in their particular area of interest. What are things people need to do to observe in a different sort of way in order to see opportunities? Because I know you've done this again with this podcast guest newsletter and, and approach you've taken. It's kind of a new way of doing that. So walk us through your, your thinking process on being the first. Well, I, I think once you start really getting engrossed in a particular topic or niche, you look around for the holes, right? What kind of problems are people experiencing and how can you help them solve those? You know, with the blog, I, people were having a problem and it's that the information they were getting was all kind of this fire hose coming through a forum. So if you've ever, anyone listening who's participated in a forum, they know there's a lot to sort through. Um, there's a lot of noise or a lot of trolls, you know, all this sort of stuff you have to deal with. And so I was looking for news and information in a clear and concise way and I couldn't find it. And so I thought I'd do it myself. And starting a blog was a very low risk way to do that. In fact, one of the things I recommend to people that are thinking about moving into a new industry or getting into a particular type of business is actually to blog about that topic for two to three months and see if it keeps your interest. You know, a lot of people burn out. I burned out on lots of things before myself. And so I think that just writing about that particular topic for a few months will really help you. A, see if you're really interested in it. And B, as you do research to write stuff, you kind of learn where some of those holes are that allow you to identify those opportunities to be first to do something. I've done plenty of things where I wasn't the first to do something. I know close friends who have made a lot of money being second or mm -hmm. third, you mm -hmm. know, and saying, hey, I see what they're doing. I can do that better. And a lot of times I've tried things where it was not the first to market, but you brought up two examples where I kind of was the the first to market in them. And again, they aren't like they were ideas that were that crazy. I mean, there was someone doing something. There was someone creating a new site about domain names, but they were just doing it in kind of a different way, like a, a feature way and just tracking domain name sales. And I thought, oh, there's something missing here. And the same thing with podcast guests, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about, but is I had a problem and there were sort of solutions to it, but there wasn't what I was looking for. And that's why I created what I created. Yeah. Oftentimes you are your ideal customer when you come up with something like that, that you see the need for, because it's something that you want or you wish existed. Exactly. As you poke around in the market, you see that others need it as well. So that takes us to the point that I'm really interested in podcasting. How did you decide that the domain name industry needed a podcast and, and why? Why a podcast? My podcast on domain name where there was one kind of false start and then there was the, the full start. 
Back before podcasting was really a term, everyone had these radio stations, <laughs> as they called them. It was just podcasting, but you know, it was set up kind of like radio. And so I did maybe a dozen interviews under what I call DNW Radio for domain name Wire Radio. And oh man, I don't even remember when that was. Maybe 2008, 2009, 10, somewhere around there. And it was a pain. Back then, there, there weren't many tools to do it. Uh, there weren't many services to do it. And there, there weren't things like Apple Podcasts on everyone's phone where it's easy for people to consume it. So I gave up on that. And then my friend bought an office building here in Austin. And I was looking for a place. I was in kind of a, a temporary executive office type situation. I said, hey, I'd love to, to lease an office space for me. He said, yeah, that's great. And very close friend. And he's like, you know what? I want to get into podcasting myself. And so I'm going to create a podcast studio in this office. And uh, I didn't really realize this, but he, he meant you're going to create a podcast studio in this <laughs> office. He's like, he's like, okay, you figure out what to do, uh, what, what kind of equipment we need and that sort of stuff, but I'll pay for it. And so, you know, they bought the sound insulation and, and I picked out a microphone and, and boom and all that sort of stuff, which as, as one of the tips I provided people, you really don't need to do that when you get started, but we did anyway. <laughs> and so I, I got into it and I, one thing I've learned running Domain Name Wire is that things change, how people access news changes, you know, social media wasn't a thing when I started Domain Name Wire. And uh, there, there weren't a lot of other media out there that are now there and that people spend a lot of time on. And so I think you always need to figure out how to leverage these new media and build them into your business. The world is littered with examples of companies that kind of rested on their laurels and failed. Basically, every company that is a dynamic, forward-thinking, big company eventually stumbles. And, and we're going to see it with even the big companies today like, like Google. Eventually, they'll be like IBM, right? Which is not the most innovative company in the world. But I thought, hey, a podcast would be an interesting thing to add here. And I realized there'd be a couple benefits from it. One is that I could sell ads in it, sure. But the bigger one was that it would give me an opportunity to have in-depth conversations with people that would otherwise not necessarily give me 30 to 60 minutes of their time. You know, I've interviewed CEOs of public companies and if I just called them up and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you for 30 minutes and get your advice or ask you about stuff, uh, lukewarm response maybe. If I reach out and say, hey, I'd love to feature you as a guest on my podcast, then all of a sudden I'm doing something for them and the response is, is much better. And so that's been one of the biggest benefits that I found from podcasting. And I think it's what people should approach podcasting with is not thinking about getting this massive audience that they can run ads on. Because yes, there are podcasts out there like it. And yes, I read people like Pat Flynn, who has, has excellent podcasts and actually teaches you a lot of how to start in podcasting. But I think people watch his stuff and are like, I'm going to get hundreds of thousands of downloads and get all these big advertisers. I don't think that is the number one benefit to running a podcast for most people. For some people, they can make a lot of money from advertising in their podcast, but most people aren't going to. Yeah. And so I look at it as an opportunity every week to sit there in front of an audience of 700 to 1200 people, which are the number of downloads I usually get per episode, and interview someone and talk to that audience. 
when you use that frame of mind, it really changes how you look at podcasting and the value you can get out of it. I totally agree. And what value did you see for yourself long-term? I mean, I understand you're making connections with industry experts, but did you see any long-term benefit that this would roll into something bigger? The thing that amazes me is whenever I go to an industry conference, people say, oh, I'm a big fan of yours. And I think they're talking about a domain name wire, but then they say, I listen every week. And there's some people that prefer to listen to podcasts than read my site, just like there are a lot of people that prefer to read rather than listen. And the people I've had on my show come back to me and say, man, after I was featured on your show, everyone knows who I am. I had all these people reach out about business deals and that sort of stuff. And so that's very rewarding as a podcaster. Now, as far as rolling into bigger things, first of all, doing my own podcast helped me help my wife, who's been a podcaster for a while, but was under a media company umbrella, start her own podcast and and manage that. So I'd say that's one thing. And the second thing is it led me on to creating podcastguests.com. And it was one of those situations where I had a challenge in podcasting and I tried to find a solution that was already out there and just couldn't find it. I kind of suspected that was the case with podcast guests because it seemed that just about the time that you contacted me about that idea, there seemed to be kind of a vacuum in the podcasting space when it came to finding good guests in a way that was efficient and helpful. So walk me through your thought process of how you determined, yeah, there's definitely a need here and I think I'm the guy to meet it. At that point, I had done about 50 DNW podcasts and I was running into a problem. I use a guest format on my podcast like I think probably most people do, but I was kind of running low on guests to invite. You know, I had already invited most of the big people in the industry. And I also wanted to bring out in some fresh voices, some people that people weren't familiar with in the domain name industry. So I went to try to find those people. And there are a couple ways that you can find them, right? You can Google around, find them on LinkedIn, invite them to be on your program. There are services out there that are kind of like PR agencies that will say, oh, okay, you want to find guests for your podcast, we'll go find them for you. And they charge quite a bit of money. I want to say probably the cheapest is maybe 400 or 500 a month to take care of this for you. But there wasn't an easy way to find guests for your podcast. And so I started looking around and there's a service that PR people know about called Help a Reporter Out or HARO for short. And this started many, many years ago. And it's basically when a reporter, a journalist is like, I need someone who lived somewhere and then they decided to sell their house and buy an RV and travel all around. (laughs) The the person at Wall Street Journal or Kiplinger who's writing this story, how how in the world are they going to find someone like that? So they would go to help a reporter out and they'd say, this is my need. And then this would get blasted out to all these PR people every day. And someone would say, oh, I know someone who fits that bill. And they put you in touch. So something similar to that is how a lot of these people, when, when you see someone write about an esoteric subject and all of a sudden they found four great you know, real life stories, they've used something like help a reporter out or nowadays they'll post on social media, hey, I'm looking for this, right? But I was like, why don't I create something just like help a reporter out, but for podcasts? And so I started playing around with this idea and I said, let's keep it really simple at first. Let's not invest a lot of money into it. So I opened up a MailChimp account. 
as a newsletter. Which is free. Uh, yeah, it's free at first, right? Well, I bought the domain podcastguests.com from someone else who was just kind of sitting on it. And then I created some forms in Google Forms for people to apply to be on shows and created a simple website for people to sign up. And then I went out and I really had to put some elbow grease into it. I emailed people like you and said, hey, I'm doing this. Will you sign up? And reached out to some other podcasters. And I'd say about after a month, I had maybe 150 people that had signed up for this. And I said, okay, let me try my first matchmaking. So I got a few of the podcasts. I think your podcastification was probably one of the very first ones and said, what are you looking for in guests? What qualifications do they need to have? And then I put together this newsletter that basically said, hey, here are maybe it's five, six, seven podcasts that are looking for guests and qualifications. If you're a fit for any of them, if you meet their qualifications, click the link and fill out the form and that will be sent to the podcaster. And so they click the link. It took them to a Google form. In fact, that's still how it works. It goes to a Google form and that information gets immediately populated into a spreadsheet that the podcaster can look at. And the podcaster can then go in and review the guests, the experts that want to be on their show. So I sent this first newsletter out and I was like, oh, fingers crossed. I hope this works. And even though there were only 150 people on this list, some of the podcasts got a lot of response, you know, half dozen responses, maybe 10 responses, which is not bad for such a, a small list. Yeah. So I knew I was on to something. And at that point, I really started to scale it out. Still, a lot of it was elbow grease, emailing people, seeing if they wanted to join. But it started to grow very nicely organically as well, just kind of word of mouth, uh, Facebook, social media, those sorts of things. And now it has over 10,000 people using the service. Some of the podcasts in there, depending on their topic and their qualifications, will get 100 responses in a week. Wow. Uh, most of them get a lot fewer than that, right? But some of them get up to that number. And it's turned into a nice business for me as well. I've added monetization along the way. And I would say that's a partial answer to my next question. As you think about it, what are the things that podcasting itself has done for you? Said another way, what are things you've been able to experience or benefit from that you would not have experienced if you hadn't started that podcast? I'd say two things that podcasting has really done for me. One is relationships. So having these in-depth conversations with people, uh, it's really a different level of intimacy than just you know writing about them. Having someone actually on the phone and, and talking to you and, and that sort of thing has really helped build relationships. The second thing is that it has you know it really built my next business, which is podcast guests. And again, started on the side, super cheap to get started. The minimum viable product, as a lot of software developers talk about it, invested more and more in it. And it's still certainly secondary to my domain name business and investing in domain names and the blog and such, but it's becoming a more meaningful part of my revenue. And so it's turned into something that I hope I can continue to grow and make even more meaningful. Every once in a while, I get an inquiry from someone who's interested in buying it and the timing was very fortunate. As you know, Carrie, the podcasting as a medium has just taken off yeah. in the past four years. And so businesses around podcasting are getting funding, they're growing, everyone's learning about podcasting, downloading podcasts. And so the timing really could not have been better. 
I can vouch for that. You jumped into that particular model of of helping the podcasting industry at just the right time because it has exploded since then. So imagine that someone's listening to the episode right now and they are considering starting a podcast. What would be your advice for someone who hasn't even taken the plunge yet? They've done some reading, they've researched blogs, they've watched some YouTube videos, but they haven't started yet. What would your advice be to them? My advice would be don't overthink it. I did so much research before starting a podcast. And and again, research is good, but I was like, well, I need to have a professional intro for my podcast. So I hired a voiceover person to do an intro. I was like, oh, I've got to get the sound just right. Oh, I've got to do all these different things. And the reality is that the best way to start podcasting is just to jump into it. There are a couple things that you really need to do before you start, but everything else you can add on later. And so the two things I'd say you need are you need good podcast cover art because it's like the cover of your book. It matters. People do judge you by your cover. And then you need to get a decent microphone so that you're not talking in your laptop. You can go get a $30, $50 snowball microphone or ATR or something like that as a starting point. And then find a quiet place, but that doesn't, you know, I'm sitting here looking around my office right now. I've got all these sound dampening tiles and and all that sort of stuff. That's really not necessary when you get started. In fact, my wife, whose podcast is many, many times more popular than mine, she started in in our clothing closet, our walk-in closet. And so time and time again, I see people who, like me, put way too much effort into just getting started rather than jumping in, getting started, and then figuring it out from there. You know, I hear all the all this advice. Oh, you need to have ten episodes when you start, and that sort of thing. I think it's great to have a few episodes when you start, but I think people really overthink this process. And you might get into podcasting and decide you hate it. You might decide it's not for you at all. And then if you spend all this time and money on stuff, you've just wasted it. So much like with podcast guests, I was basically using free online tools to get into it. With podcasting, I'd say just kind of go that easy, simple route at first. The smartest things I've done, the things I pay for are editing, which you do, which would be a massive time suck for me. And I know it wouldn't be my expertise. Uh, And I outsourced the design of my cover for my podcast and I bought some music for it. The intro I originally paid for, I decided it was just too cheesy and I dropped that maybe a hundred episodes <laughs> in and uh, just started doing my own intro with, with some background music. And everyone has a different style. I'm not saying you shouldn't have an intro. I think intros are great. But when you start out, you don't know if you need one or not, right? And so rather mm-hmm. than paying a couple hundred dollars for someone to do it, if that is something that's going to slow you down, don't do it. Just jump right into it. And what would you say to a podcaster who has been podcasting for a while and they have not gained the traction they hoped for yet and are struggling with whether to stick with it or not? Mm. As you know, a lot of podcasters stop podcasting. In fact, on podcastguests.com, podcasters can submit themselves to be featured in the newsletter to have their podcast featured. As I mentioned, you know, here are my qualifications, that sort of thing. I won't feature any podcast that hasn't done at least 10 episodes yet. Because there are a lot of podcasters who start and then stop before 10 episodes because they realize it's a lot of work, especially if they're doing it all themselves. Uh, And editing, again, is the biggest time suck by far. I think part of it is people need to have a mind shift if they feel like they're not getting traction. And a lot of those people come in and they were thinking, 
I want to get tens of thousands of downloads so I can sell advertising against this. They weren't thinking about the things I said earlier, which is the relationships you can build and how you can build your own brand through podcasting and get conversations with guests that otherwise wouldn't give you the time of day. And so Pat Flynn, who I mentioned earlier, I saw him on stage at a podcast movement conference a few years ago, and he was talking about someone who came up to him who was like, ah, I only have 200 listeners and I'm thinking about throwing in the towel. And Pat told him, he's like, okay, if I told you you could sit in front of this audience with 200 people in front of you every week or however often you publish a podcast and those 200 people would listen to you, what would you say? He's like, oh, that'd be amazing to you know talk to an audience of 200 people every week. And he's like, well, that's what you're doing with your podcast. And so I think kind of changing that frame of mind is important. The other thing I would say is that the number one way to grow your own podcast audience is to be a guest on other podcasts, right? Those are people that listen to podcasts. <laughs> Whenever you're on another podcast, you're reaching a target audience for you. Um, and those are people that already have a podcast app on their phone, likely. They already know how to subscribe to podcasts, that sort of thing. So I would say, first of all, change your frame of mind. And second is you, you have to work for it. You know, with with a website, you've got many ways to get traffic to it and you can buy ads for a few pennies a click to get traffic to it as well. Podcasting, there's no Google AdWords for podcasting. There's no easy way to promote your podcast. There's a lot of elbow grease that goes into it. But being a guest on other podcasts is a great way to grow it. And then having good guests on yours that will go out and promote it. As an example, when you publish this podcast episode, I'll promote it. I'll promote it on social media and my newsletter, that sort of thing. And it helps you grow your audience at the same time, right? So I think those are, from a tactical perspective, I get really involved with being a guest and having great guests and following up with them after they're a guest on your program and asking them to promote you. One of the things I actually added after a conversation with a podcaster on my service is whenever anyone applies to be on a podcast... It says, what will you do to help promote the podcast that you're on? And I added that question. I was at a, a networking event here in Austin during South by Southwest a, a couple of years ago. And I was talking to a friend who's a podcaster. And he said, I get pitched all the time from people that want to be on my podcast. But none of them say, here's how I'm going to help you. And he's like, I want to know, are you going to help promote the show that you're on? Uh, are you serious about this? That sort of thing. And so after I was like, oh, that's brilliant. So I added it to the application form and, and all the people that are in my directory, the, the experts also say, here's what I will do to promote the shows that I'm on. It's kind of everyone scratching each other's backs, <laughs> but it's important, especially in a medium that is growing so quickly and is still not as widely understood as websites. That's perfect advice for both of those scenarios. Wow, that was an incredible conversation with Andrew. I just loved his insights on how to notice the opportunities that are right there before you in your niche or in your industry. And I want to encourage you to take a moment to stop and think about your own pain points as someone who's very interested in your particular subject matter. What are the things you wish existed? What are the things you wish were better? And are there opportunities there that you can take advantage of? Those may be ways that you can leverage what you're doing on your podcast toward being one to provide that solution for your niche or industry. I'd love to hear the thoughts that you have. Give me a shout, Carrie at podcastfasttrack.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Go out and make it a podcastificating day. 
This show is brought to you by Podcast Fast Track, where my team provides professional podcasting services without the time suck. Full production, editing, and show notes all in one monthly subscription package. You can find out more at podcastfasttrack.com. Now go out and make it a podcastificating day. 